Josh, I'm the founder of the sustainable fashion brand Slowly by Consensus. This is the third episode of Slowly Radio. This month, I'm joined by Dorothy Sears, professor of nutrition at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Our conversation focuses on the body's circadian rhythm. Let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Dorothy Sears. I'm a professor of nutrition at the uh, Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. And I also have an adjunct position at UC San Diego in the Department of Medicine and Family Medicine. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for uh, joining me today, Dorothy. This is, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and kind of get this information out to, to people. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to this one. Great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so I kind of wanted to dive into the topic of time-restricted eating and how that's connected to our circadian rhythms. Um, could you explain what circadian rhythm is and, and, and kind of how, how that works and how that's like a, a cycle for the body? Sure. So circadian rhythms are something that almost every living thing on the planet has, which is a 24-hour cycle, light-dark cycle, dictated by the sun, when the sun's up, when the sun's down. And the body or the cell, depending on what critter you're talking about, Mm -hmm. is going to be um, performing different activities, biological activities, biochemical pathways, um, sometimes different behaviors, depending on whether it's light or dark outside. And so in every cell, there is actually a protein system that regulates this, and it has a circadian uh, pattern to it of this 24-hour cycle. So it goes through um, uh, these cycles, and so in some parts of the body, we have proteins that are expressed during the daytime, and sometimes we have other proteins that are expressed during the nighttime. And this change in protein expression dictates what kind of biological pathways that can go on and it influences things like nutrient metabolism, sleep, and other behaviors. Physical yes. activity of what, you know, the best time to do physical activity and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, so when we, when we first wake up and, and light hits our eyes, the clock starts, uh, and the, those, that genome expression starts happening. Um, yeah. And, and then, uh, as uh, that so relates you bring to- up a, if, if I could, you bring up a really important point that I should say, and that is that um, I mentioned the light dark, but you mentioned when we get up in the morning, the light hits our eyes. Yeah. So um, light um, going through our eyes and into a p- part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, this is where that central clock is, and it's really driven by that light signal. 
Um, there are other clocks that are driven by, let's say, nutrient signals in other parts of the body, but our primary or master clock, as it's called, is in the brain and driven by light. Okay, so that uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus, that's, that's like a sensor or uh, mm -hmm. it goes off when the, okay, when the light hits it. Um, and then that showing. clock in the brain is talking to other clocks throughout the body. Mm. Um, but that's where the, that master clock is. So even, you know, the liver has a clock, our skin has a clock, um, and they're not all um, doing exactly the same thing, of course, but they are talking to each other mm. uh, through both through uh, nerves that are connecting the brain to these other parts of the body, but also things that get secreted into the circulation. Those are also part of the kind of crosstalk between these different parts of the body. Yeah, yeah. And then so... You mentioned that uh, different parts of the body have their own clock, like the liver, for example. How do those, how do those clocks get started? So the clocks, the, definitely the suprachiasmatic or the SCN okay. is talking yeah. to the liver clock. But once we eat food, the nutrients that are getting into the blood, they are also um, talking to, to core clock uh, pathways in the liver. And so this is why um, it is really important that the the suprachiasmatic clock, the master clock, is in synchrony with the other clocks. Um, mm. So our bodies are designed, for example, to um, process nutrients the most effectively during the day, primarily in the morning and the midday, and then as the circadian clock is ticking in the liver, mm -hmm. let's say, um, then our bodies are less able to process nutrients in the night. So when you have food at night and it's dark, your uh, synchrony between these clock systems is um, is askew. Mm. You have the brain thinking, hey, it's nighttime, I'm doing these things, and then you have the liver getting the nutrient signals saying, wait a minute, is it daytime? I'm getting food. It's <laughs> confused. So it will, yeah, it gets confused. Yeah, yeah. So once you take your first bite of food, so it, uh, does drinking count? Is that is that so... I guess if you have a sip of water, you're still fasting, um, but any kind of any enzymes you have to break down or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So there's differences of opinion about, you know, fasting. And I, I don't know that anybody's ever looked to see whether actually biologically drinking water impacts the um, circadian rhythms. Uh, but definitely calories do. So things mm. with some kind of nutrient, um, they do so. Uh, caffeine also there's um, you know there's debate on biologically whether caffeine is setting the clock it t tends to impact the circadian rhythm um, however when um, so with the folks that are the biological mouth model um, scientists and they're looking at how things work they're thinking about these things I like to think about what are people doing in the real world mm -hmm. um, so if um, when we're thinking about fasting um, if you can fast a little longer in the morning and that a black coffee helps you do that, <laughs> then yeah. I say go for it because, <laughs> because if I don't get my coffee in the morning, you get a headache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe delaying your breakfast a little bit uh, could be could be beneficial. Um, is there like well, a, is it, go on. I think you have to tie it all together in a 24-hour clock. So I think it's not just about delaying breakfast, um, but it's about having a period of time during the nighttime where you completely sustain from caloric intake. And so um, it seems 
from the data that the, if you're stopping your food intake or greatly reducing your food intake earlier in the evening, somewhere, we don't know what the magic time is, but five between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, and then abstaining from food until the next day. Um, in our, in our uh, population studies, this looks like 13 hours of fasting, 12 to 14 hours is uh, a good range of fasting time that's associated with health benefits. Yeah. So if you stop eating at 6 p.m. and you want to go 14 hours of fasting, that means you don't eat till 8. So you might wake up at 6. Yeah. Want, yeah. want a cup I of see. coffee? You should have a cup of coffee. But I don't think that skipping breakfast and going fasting all the way into the lunch period, okay, um, yeah. I think that, that has its own problem. That has, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, yeah, you might end up eating later as well. If you do that, you might not start getting hungry for dinner until... That's right. Yeah. Well, and there are other things too, like, um, you know, and again, these are things that are um, kind of educated guesses. They haven't been formulated. Mm. This, what I'm going to tell you now, hasn't been formally tested. Mm. But if you're fasting for a particularly long period of time, um, and then your day starts, you're going to go commute to work, you know, COVID aside, <laughs> we're going to yeah. get in the car, drive to work. Um, you know, if you've been fasting for a long period of time, I suspect, and I experienced this myself, um, that if I have some kind of scary experience, a fight or flight type of experience, mm. that then the blood glucose drops because you've been maintaining it. Your body's very good at maintaining your glucose level, but when you have an acute um, challenge, a stressor, um, that can drop your glucose. And we know that that is not good for the body long term when you're experiencing that. So I suspect that that's one reason why skipping breakfast and waiting for a long period of time just um, is not overall good for the body. Yeah, okay, you drop your glucose level, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then so that will bring about like a cortisol release or, and, that, and that's bad or? Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. those fight or flight hormones. Um, mm. Well, cortisol is a circadian, it has a circadian mm. rhythm, um, but um, epinephrine and norepinephrine, mm -hmm. the, yeah. yeah, those yeah. are the things they tell your body we gotta run, so the mm. glucose in your blood gets taken up by the tissues so you can energize your muscle and your tissues and you could run from the yeah. lion. But now your body will respond very quickly and the liver uh, fits in the daily life. No, I'll say, how, how would you uh, recommend people manage that? Because um, obviously uh, you want to try and have, like you were saying, a decent amount of, of, of gut rest uh, at night. So not eating too late, but there are those social pressures to, I don't know, maybe go out for dinner and, like how sure. do you yeah yeah so well there's a really interesting mouse study um done in Sachin panda's lab at the where yeah. um they looked to see you know had been doing the time restricted feeding studies in the mice and they found this to be very effective for um controlling obesity and uh, metabolic dysfunction or you know when yeah. your metabolism wasn't working right and one of the folks in the lab said well what if um the mice could eat whenever they wanted on the weekend, but only Monday through Friday we do the time restricted feeding. Okay. And the mice had the same metabolic benefit as if they were doing it every day. So as a as a clinical researcher, I find this very exciting because you know, let's say on the weekends you want to go out with your friends and have a late dinner, or you want to have a glass of wine at nine o'clock <laughs> yeah. at night. You know, yeah. it seems like if you um, have a day or maybe even two days off a week, that this is still going to be okay in the long term. 
yeah. and, and I don't think of um, this eating pattern as a diet or something I'm going to do for a short period of time. I try to do it all the time. Yeah. So it's, it's a long game. Yeah. And yeah. So a day off, one or two, or two days off a week, it seems okay that it might be okay for humans. It definitely is okay for mice. And so this is another thing that needs to be tested, you know, in controlled mm. studies. Mm. So kind of it's very promising. Like, yeah. <laughs> So, so treating it like a lifestyle, and then one or two, yeah. one or two dips here and there, um, isn't gonna do too much, too much damage. Um, exactly. And so, eating kind of in the first half of the day is important um, because we're most insulin sensitive at that, at that point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We are most insulin sensitive during the morning and the midday, and then our bodies become progressively less sensitive to the hormone insulin. Um, throughout the day, um, even the tissue, the pancreas that secretes the insulin is on a circadian clock, so you don't mm. have as much insulin secretion at night. So it doesn't okay. work as well in the target tissues, and it also doesn't get secreted as much. So the negative outcome of that is that you get a higher glucose concentration in the blood after your dinner meals than you would having the same meal at breakfast or the same meal at lunch. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the later you go into the night, the worse you Because <laughs> essentially the body is shifting gears. The body is saying, mm. I want to start growing now. I don't want to start with, I don't want to be receiving nutrients. So things like growth hormone are stimulated uh, in a pulsatile fashion but, fashion, but the pulses get larger in the night. And growth hormone and insulin uh, work against each other. They don't okay. like to be in the same place, <laughs> in the same sandbox. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and another hormone too that's secreted at night is melatonin and that's yeah. what's helping us sleep um, and also suppressed by light. So melatonin, um, it gets secreted in the nighttime and melatonin and insulin also counteract each other. So, um, you know, these are some kind of, kind of uh, circadian hormonal pathways that are really controlling not just our ability to process nutrients, but our sleep quality, mm. um, alertness, and things like that so yeah you mentioned um that can affect your sleep quality and so what are what are some of the detrimental effects of kind of eating late into the evening slash night what are those mm -hmm. so uh, quite a bit so we we just to touch on sleep a little bit this has not yeah. been formally tested but this is something that we have some ongoing studies where we're looking at sleep mm. um but we know in some interventions that people just uh, when they're asked about sleep, they self-report that they get better sleep quality when they're doing a time-restricted feeding or prolonged nightly fasting regimen. Yeah. Um, I even have friends that I have told about this pattern of eating and I didn't say anything about sleep and then they come back to me and say, oh my God, I'm sleeping so much better. So yeah. I, I think this is gonna be a really exciting area of research um, to come. Um, we know that there's a lot of health, negative health outcomes that are associated with eating at night. Yeah. Um, uh, disease-wise, so for example, higher incidence of breast cancer, prostate cancer, cardiovascular disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes as well. Um, in our controlled studies where we're actually measuring the, um, chemicals in the blood and blood pressure, we know that eating at night is associated with higher blood pressure, higher mm -hmm. insulin and higher glucose, and a larger waist circumference, which we don't want that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so then the, the problem is, um, like you said, your your body's shifting into that kind of growth mode and repair mode at, at night, and and you've got a whole heap of sugar coming in or glucose. 
uh, that it needs to deal with and it's not quite sure how to do that or or, right. or, or that glucose gets left and turns into fat is that how it um well, that's a good question um i don't know whether conversion of glucose into fat is more efficient at night than it normally mm. is uh, but i do know that if you just um uh, that the glucose is hanging out in the blood for longer you know mm. normally when we eat a meal um the glucose molecules that come from that meal are you know they enter into the bloodstream and then the hormone insulin is going to tell the tissues in our bodies to take up the glucose get it out of the blood okay okay um and so at night this is not um, happening as effectively so the glucose uh, concentrations stay high in the blood for a longer period of time while insulin is trying to do its job mm. and um what happens when uh, the blood glucose is high is that you get kind of a sugar coating of proteins that are in the vasculature in your blood vessels mm. um even hemoglobin in our red blood cells gets sugar coated and so there's an actual clinical biomarker called hemoglobin a1c and mm. hemoglobin a1c is what doctors look at to see if people who have diabetes have been controlling their glucose because the more okay. glucose molecules on the hemoglobin the worse their glucose control has been oh, okay so you can imagine a protein that has you know proteins are very it's very important that their structure is maintained uh if now the structure of your protein is getting peppered with glucose molecules around it it's yes. not going to fit or function as well as it normally would because of these they're called glycation reactions mm. um, and so that and they're permanent um so once that protein is um recycled you know it sticks around um yeah so hemoglobin A1C is a clinical biomarker, but there are all kinds of other proteins, like I say, the lining of the small blood vessels uh, that get damaged. And so, mm. for example, in type 2 diabetes, when we think about the complications of type 2 diabetes to the retinal, um, loss of sight, um, loss of um, nerve sensation in the extremities, the fingertips and the toes, this is a lot because this is primarily due to those glycation reactions that are inhibiting the normal functioning of those little yeah. vesicle vessels in your retina or whatnot um, in the kidney too so um, the more we can um, control uh, improve glucose control with the fasting at night uh, you know eliminating eating at night uh, or at least late at night this should reduce risk for uh, diabetes and uh, related comorbidities like cardiovascular disease and 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 so dementia other, yeah dementia as well okay mm -hmm. and so are those reactions causing inflammation and that's where things are going wrong or you're just yeah, damaging so the protein high, and it doesn't yeah so uh, glucose high glucose in the blood can cause what's called oxidative stress mm. and so the oxidative stress creates very reactive molecules that can trigger inflammation so absolutely, uh, that that is also happening. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and so, somebody who maybe has a chronic disease or um, diabetes, how can they use time restricted eating to to help help that? So, um, for people with type two diabetes, I think um, you want to first consult your physician, uh, mm -hmm. let them know what you, you want to do. Um, people have been trying all kinds of regimens with type 2 diabetes patients. Um, I, I think that just either eliminating food intake at night, let's say, you know, no food after 7 or 8 p.m. Mm. Um, will help a lot. Um, okay. 
in our studies, we show that um, consumption of less than 30% of your calories at night is associated with better health measures, for example, mm -hmm. the blood, blood glucose or the blood pressure and so forth, um, versus people who have more than 30% of their calories at night. Mm. I think this gets to another social issue is that typically in the Western world, we our biggest meal is the dinner. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we, I think part of this is um, a reframing of, of social habits and thinking about, okay, I need to eat a bigger breakfast and lunch and have a small, small dinner. So yeah. I think people with type 2 diabetes could definitely benefit from, from that. Mm. There have been um, published so far very uh, a relatively few number of what we call randomized controlled trials of time-restricted mm. eating or prolonged nightly fasting. Um, there are some new big trials funded right now, and I just have a new one funded from NIH myself. So okay, great. This, this, this data will get better, but yeah. um, some studies have included people with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, and so far there doesn't seem to be any safety concern in these populations, mm. which is very promising. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned pre-diabetes there. What, what, is, what is that? Is that um, you kind of, uh, the A1C you mentioned, is that like a, you can see the glucose is high or it's starting to get high and then... That's correct, yeah. yeah. So both the fasting glucose is high, but not in the clinical classification of type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, the, the changes happen gradually, so it's early on. And then also the hemoglobin A1C is also elevated. Um, mm. So there's kind of a cutoff for diabetes. So if you cross over the line, you have diabetes. But before then, there's kind of a range that they call pre-diabetes. Okay. So if you if you did have pre-diabetes and you caught it early and you tried this, you could reverse that potentially and not cross over the line? So I think that you could at least slow the trajectory and okay. improve that hemoglobin A1C. We know that um, a lot of different lifestyle interventions can delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Unfortunately, mm. there's a, a strong genetic component for risk of type 2 diabetes. So some folks are probably going to get diabetes later, you know, yeah. Yeah. someday, but the more you can um, delay the onset, the better off for your long-term health. So yeah. I think everybody everybody could benefit um, from just trying to think about ways that can control their glucose. And the nice thing about the fasting regimens and time-restricted feeding is that you um, you don't have to read labels to do it. You just look at the clock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, so that that's another question, I guess, is uh, how much does diet quality pay a part in what you're eating? Um, uh, yeah, or is it more about just getting within those time frames? Yeah, so this is also a really interesting question, and um, the NIH has just released a bunch of uh, funds for research. Um, people are applying for these now to look at these more intricate questions. So mm. if I'm doing time-restricted feeding, um, can I still eat McDonald's hamburgers? You know, yeah. in the mouth, this works in the mouth. So in the mouth, okay. um, they're eating very high-fat chow, uh, this high-fat pellets in their cage. And if you just do the time-restricted feeding, they, the metabolic benefit is enormous and you don't change the food quality. We don't know whether this is going to work in humans or not. Yeah. Um, and also it may be that um, the, the mice yeah, when they're eating for only eight hours, they still eat the same number of kilocalories. So they kind of catch on like, oh, I only get food for eight hours. So I'm going to eat all the Scuff calories. It down. But it's interesting because in humans, um, it appears that in 
some people, they tend to eat less when they're doing the time-restricted feeding. Okay. And so another circadian rhythm is that um, is a behavior of food intake. So we normally have a satiety signal when we feel full. Mm -hmm. And that's some of those satiety signals are in circadian rhythms so that we they don't work as well at night. So yeah. if you're eating at night, you might eat more calories at uh, night than you would because you're not getting that satiety feedback to the brain. Yeah. So you don't get that uh, feeling of being full or you don't get that message. You, you exactly. could just keep going. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I learned this recently. So when your stomach enlarges, when the food gets in there, your stomach enlarges, that's stretching. It's like just mm. a, a physical stretching signal that is connected to some nerves that go up to the brain. And mm. they tell the brain, um, hey, the stomach is stretching, and the brain says, hey, okay, we're full, stop eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is under circadian control. Wow. So that, that signaling doesn't work as well at night, which explains maybe why people, when they're snacking at night, they might eat more than they were snacking in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, what's control? I, um, so yeah, the, I guess the gut isn't, and the liver are not controlled by light, but obviously, like you said, the first intake of food. And then so you've mm -hmm. got 12, you've got those 12 hours to kind of finish eating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the liver isn't detecting light directly, but it is yeah, yeah. listening to the circadian, uh, the uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is yeah. telling it that it's light. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. and then so within that, um, obviously people eat kind of three times a day roughly, but then some people kind of snack in between those times. Does that have any effect? That's a really good question too. So there are some re there's research going on looking at the frequency of meals. Yeah, like we have a lot of little meals. Um, is that mm. better than having three meals? Um, and I think the, the the jury's still out on that. We don't we don't know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what we need to layer onto that research and to the interpretation of the findings is when are these what time are these things happening? Yeah, because the frequency thing if you are eating frequently but you're eating frequently well into the night then that's bad versus somebody mm. who's eating frequently but only within a particular frame of time that is in alignment with circadian the circadian clock yeah yeah oh i had one thought too that i wanted to tell you so uh, about the what type of food does it matter yeah so there's a study uh out of um hong kong uh looking at the incidence of breast cancer in women and so women who eat after 10 o'clock had a higher risk of breast cancer. It was a very large population. So they were able to say, well, what if the women were eating just fruits and vegetables after 10 mm. o'clock? And when they looked at that group, that group did not have an increase of breast cancer risk, even though wow. they're eating fruits and vegetables after 10 o'clock. So I suspect that it will matter what you were eating at night. And um, I think this is um, very promising for shift workers you have mm. a very high percentage of shift folks in the in the Western world who do shift work. Yeah, and they don't really have any choice about it. Um, it's um, even even um, the the um, International Cancer Society uh, has described shift work as a carcinogen. Wow! Because the evidence is so strong. Wow. Um, so what do we do for those folks? So if yeah. we can determine fruits and vegetables at work for you mm -hmm. are good or have a salad and then have your big meal when you get home at 6 a.m. 
So these uh, kinds of questions are things that we really need to um, to answer so that we can help those communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, shift workers is a big one, isn't it? Because um, uh, obviously their sleep is affected and then their eating habits change. So um, if yeah, if there is something they can eat that's, that, that kind of offsets some of that, that damage that might occur, that's amazing. Exactly. And then with the shift workers, it's even more complicated than just food, right? Because they're exposed to the light. Mm. They're exposed to light at night. So their central clock in the brain is confused. Well. Yeah. So yeah. what do you do about that and so we do have blue light blocking goggles um yeah. i actually use these myself at home after 8 p.m i put them on um but you can't have a shift worker put on blue light blocking goggles because now they probably get sleepy yes so, yeah <laughs> that, that melatonin kicks in. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah exactly. yeah oh wow. okay that's really interesting and then so um does age play a part at all in kind of your resistance to some of these things like if you're kind of yeah late teens early 20s and you out partying eating late does that is that going to catch up with you or is it um are you pretty resilient at that age yeah it's a really good question um as we age we just become more insulin resistant okay so i'd imagine that older folks will have a, a more detrimental effect or out eating at night will have a more detrimental effect on them because they already have that layer of insulin resistance yeah. because of their age. So mm. younger folks might be a little more resilient, um, you know, and have just a really great insulin sensitivity. And so even though sensitivity is relatively lower at night, it's still pretty good for them. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting, yeah, to look at um, different age groups. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned that um, breast cancer trial you, you, you did, and I, I think I saw a study um, uh, where you looked at um, recovery rates and the likelihood of um, uh, relapsing with the cancer. Yes. Um, uh, could you tell me a bit about that? What was? Yeah, so this was a study um, uh, of the data that was generated. We analyzed data from a study called the Women's Healthy Eating and Living Trial, WELL. Mm -hmm. So the WELL participants, there are over 3,000 women breast cancer survivors in this study. And they were um, enrolled in, you know, either a weight loss diet, which was mm. a low, low fat, high fruits and vegetables, or, you know, control condition. And then they were um, monitored out um, over 10 years time. Okay. Um, and during that time, they were, you know, because it was a diet intervention, they were collecting data about what were they eating, what time were they eating. So we mm. had all this, what we call time stamped data. So yeah. we were able to go back to those records and look at, well, what time were people eating? So from all these uh, over 3,000 women, we were able to look at 30,000 food recalls wow. that were time stamped. And then over the period of this 10 years follow up of these, in, of these ladies, they were keeping track of who got breast cancer again or who died of cancer or died of anything. So mortality yeah. outcomes and breast cancer. And so um, the student who was working with us at the time, Catherine Marinak, what she was able to show was that the women who fasted for um, less than 13 and a half hours had a 36% increase in breast cancer recurrence compared to the women who fasted for at least 13.5 hours. Wow. Yeah, and there was also associations with sleep. So longer duration of fasting was associated with longer duration of sleep. Mm -hmm. But these are associations 
action studies, not intervention studies. So uh, we don't know that the fasting is affecting sleep directly or just people who fast more go to bed early. I, you know, we don't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that was a really exciting study. And to this day, that is the only fasting, um, the only data showing a what we call a clinical outcome associated with fasting. Okay. So clinical outcome is you get cancer or you have a heart attack or something like that versus a biomarker where you're looking at hemoglobin A1C. Or mm, mm. So it's pretty strong, strong data to say this is the likely outcome or this yeah. is the outcome. It is a strong association data. So, uh -huh. um, and yeah, so the, the, the best test is what we call a randomized controlled trial. So mm. you recruit individuals, you have a control group, you have an intervention, you actually change what they're doing. Um, and so we now, um, I and other folks in the United States are doing research with actually doing these randomized control trials, mm. um, take individuals who fast for less than 12 hours and then increase their fasting time. And how does that change their health outcome? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so when do you think you'll see kind of some of the outcomes from those those trials? Um, so one of them um, is being conducted by Courtney Peterson at the Pennington Institute. Um, I think she is probably going to have data in about four years. And I don't mm. know how much COVID has delayed her. So we all of us yeah. doing clinical trials have been a little bit yeah. slowed down by COVID. Um, yeah. I think she'll have her data in about five years. Um, my trial is just uh, getting started. I'm collaborating with Julie Pendergast at the University of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So we will start enrolling individuals probably in the fall. And mm -hmm. it's a five-year it's a five-year overall study. So um, the intervention is only 12 weeks, but um, uh, we will have our data five years from now, essentially. Yeah. So it, yeah. it takes a while to get the data. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen kind of any kind of like cult, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, maybe association or observation from like cultural differences, like different cultures eating kind of at different times and uh, yeah. anything like that? I'm glad that you asked me that because I almost always get a question. Well, what about in Spain? Because in Spain, they always eat late at night, you know? Yeah. And yeah. So there's a couple of things. So one is that it, the people in Spain, just to use that country as an example, they have a lot of different health behaviors than we have in the United States. So for example, they walk a lot. Mm. They, they use the stairs a lot, <laughs> a lot more than people in the United States. Yeah. So they have those kind of health behaviors. So yes, they're eating at night. Um, they, but Spain also has an obesity problem. Obesity okay. is an epidemic around the world where yeah. people have plentiful food. As long as there's no food scarcity, we have obesity. Yeah. So, um, so Spain is not immune to that. Um, they, um, another health behavior that the Spanish have is that they eat smaller portions mm. um, than the United States. So yeah. yes, they're eating at night, but there are some other factors there. And then um, there are two studies that are really interesting that um, uh, are in a Spanish population. They were um, analysis of data from two different weight loss trials. One was a study looking at weight loss after bariatric surgery, and one was a study just looking at, you know, reduced calorie weight loss standard. And what they said was, let's look at this data. They knew when people were eating, when their meals were, and how big they were. So they said, well, does it matter in these populations when they eat their biggest meal? 
And what they found was that the women, uh, I don't know that they were all women, the individuals in this trial, um, if they had their biggest meal at lunchtime, yeah. they lost more weight than the people who ate their biggest meal at dinner. And this yeah. is insane. <laughs> insane. <Yeah. laughs> so the biology, I think, is pretty universal, um, yeah. at, le at least in kind of European, um, Western world populations. Um, there's some uh, studies out of uh, Korea and one in Japan that suggest mm -hmm. that fasting doesn't have any benefit for those individuals. But um, just looking at fasting time takes away um, some of the assessment of whether the food intake is happening during the day or during the night and what mm. proportion in the day. So yeah. there's a lot of different um, dimensions to examine. In these yeah. yeah, and that's interesting what you're saying about obviously portion size. So for those shift workers who are eating late, as we said, um, mm -hmm. maybe just reducing that portion size that they, that they do. Do have exactly. Good as well. Yeah, because if the yeah. portion is small, then that's less glucose getting into the blood. You know. Yeah. Or something that doesn't have very much glucose, like fruit and vegetables. You know, depends. As long as it's not a, a, a fruit smoothie, those have a lot yeah. of sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't <laughs> pile that up. fruit. <laughs> yeah. Whole yeah. fruit, a salad. You know, some lean meat. You know, maybe. Yeah. You know, that's that, that's yeah. a dietary plan that would be effective for them. Kind of limit the carbohydrate. Uh, later, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, later on to the evening, yeah. And then, so is there, have you seen kind of anything with d people of different races or anything like that? Any change? So, again, the studies have been quite small mm. um, for the intervention. Mm. Um, in, in the well study, um, there wasn't, a, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of um, racial mm. or ethnic diversity in there. Uh, we have done a pilot study of the prolonged nightly fast, we call it PROFAST, prolonged nightly fasting intervention. Yeah. And we did two groups of 10 women and one group we went to the South County of, of San Diego and we enrolled um, lower socioeconomic status of Latina women. So these are mm -hmm. postmenopausal women and mm -hmm. um, with a different family structure than our other population, which was in La Jolla, California, predominantly white, college educated, mm. you know. And yeah. so we uh, did it, uh, the study in both of them, just to see whether it's feasible. Because again, with the family and cooking dinner at yeah. night, you know, does this, um, does this work for those ladies? And, and can they achieve um, the goal, which was to fast for at least 12 hours every night. Um, and, and they were just as, capable and excited about it as the women in La Jolla. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in that one, it was just a trial to look at what we call feasibility. Like, does mm. this work? Does this okay. even work uh, in people's lives? And mm. so they, uh, we saw a modest amount of uh, weight change, but it was just a short one month intervention and the change was not statistically significant. So this needs to be replicated in larger populations, but at least the social context that were so different um, seem to not um, bias the efficacy of, um, I, I should say, the feasibility yeah, of, of the intervention. Of this, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And then yeah. um, you mentioned like, weight loss there. Like, is there any kind of other health benefits? I think I read a study that, or oh, maybe the mice um, increase muscle mass um, mm. when they stop eating after a certain time. Um, I don't know about the muscle mass one. Okay. In our studies, the mice don't. We, we fatten them up so they're really obese when okay, we start. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we fatten them up first, and then we split the mice into two groups. And one, they just keep eating whenever they want, which pretty much is 24 hours a day they eat. Mm. <laughs> and then the other group, we only let them have the food for eight hours. So they, they lose a little bit of body weight in the beginning, and then they stabilize. Yeah. Yeah. If we look at their fat mass, if we can look inside the mice and we look at the fat mass, the fat mass is shrinking. Mm. And interestingly, live the uh, fat that is in the liver of those obese mice goes away. Wow. Fatty liver is a huge problem in the United States um, and the Western world. It goes along yeah. with obesity. Even in young children, fatty liver is a problem. Wow. So the fact that the time-restricted feeding is reducing the fat in the liver was really exciting. Um, the insulin, the fasting insulin levels go down, which tell us that the mice are becoming more insulin sensitive. Mm. Um, so a lot of biologic, a lot of metabolic, biologically metabolic um, benefits happen. Um, that the magnitude of that far exceeds the magnitude of the weight change. Yeah, yeah. I think it gets to another thing in our society. I, mean, I think weight loss is good. But a lot of people are thinking about, oh, I want the number on the scale to get smaller. Yeah. And, and we do, and that's a good thing. But um, when you start a regimen like time-restricted feeding, it's possible that you could be having metabolic benefit and not see a change on the scale. Yeah, and yeah. There are just changes that we cannot sense or we can't measure without taking a blood sample or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and arguably those changes are, are, are better, right? Like you want to reduce the fat in your liver and um, right and, and some of the changes that you can see or notice are like better sleep and, and things like that is definitely gonna definitely gonna right. help you recover exactly. properly and help your brain and all, all of that um, exactly uh, we have a small trial going on right now to see whether if the time restricted feeding will improve cognition in mm. older adults who have mild cognitive impairment we know that cognitive de decline is associated with um, these high levels of glucose exposure. So people with diabetes um, are more likely to have cognitive decline than people without diabetes. So we are optimistic that we'll see mm. some improvements in cognition. Um, one of my colleagues at Arizona State, uh, Carol Johnson, has started doing some small pilot studies in the undergrads at Arizona State, so relatively young population. Yeah. Yeah. And showing, um, she found um, some evidence that mood improves. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's going to be really exciting to see all yeah. the new studies that come out. Yeah, definitely. And is that the kind of link you were saying with dementia earlier? Um, is that how that would happen, like higher levels of glucose at, at night? And you're, I guess your yeah. brain's not dealing with that or clearing that away? Or... Exactly, because that vascular damage that I mentioned can be happening mm. in the brain, and then that interferes with our ability to get oxygen to the brain yeah. and nutrients. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. And, and is there kind of any studies out there looking at maybe how this could be used for peak performance, and maybe athletes want to uh, look at this? or? Um... Yes, there are a few uh, studies looking at, um, you know, they're very small. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. But I think there's promise. I think there's promise there. Um, mm. and, and sometimes they're kind of mixed with it's prolonged nightly fasting plus strength training. So they mix a lot of interventions mm. at the same time. Yeah. So sometimes in, in those designs, it's hard to determine what was the most effective uh, factor mm. in the result. So, but I think there's promise there. Um, yeah. Also debate on what time of day is the best time to exercise. Yes. Because we know that, um, we know that, uh, for example, that, um, uh, 
you know, our, our greatest uh, muscle strength and cardiovascular strength, our co- best coordination is in the afternoon, the later afternoon. Okay. So is that one? Is that when we want to exercise? Is that when yeah. we want to play our sports? Um, yeah. And then the exercise scientists will say, well, if you can get people to exercise any time of day, that's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so don't confuse people about what time of day. But I know for elite athletes, of course, this is something that um, they might be able to capitalize on to improve their yeah. performance. Yeah. And I think I saw another study as well so, saying something of uh, endurance was improved, like the kind of the earlier um, people stopped eating. Well, I can't remember if this was in people or mice, but earlier stopped eating, they had better endurance the next day. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and like you said, finding out about the time as well. Like the... Yeah. And then the, is that because they got better sleep? And then they mm. had better endurance, you know. So yeah, yeah, these things are so linked. And so when we design our studies, we're trying to measure all these things at the same time. So we have people wearing, you know, wrist accelerometers and um, things that we can use to objectively measure sleep time. Mm. Um, even um, you're probably familiar with the continuous glucose monitor. This is a device that people with type one diabetes first were wearing. Okay. Um, it measures a glucose level every five minutes, and you can even have an app on your phone to measure oh, that's cool. uh, yeah. the glucose and see what your glucose is. So this helps them keep their glucose in control because they can see it so often and don't have to prick their finger all the time. Yeah. So now it's becoming more common for people with type two diabetes to wear these, uh, to use these, and then mm. also to um, for researchers to use them. So if I'm asking somebody, when did you last eat? They may tell me the truth, they may not. <laughs> they may forget. I forgot yeah. that I had some Cheetos yeah. at ten o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with a with a continuous glucose monitor on, I can see. You get that time when they, when they have the carbohydrate. I can see that comes. That's uh, dark, Yeah. So I think combining these different uh, devices, wearable devices that objectively measure um, our body's rhythms, our sleep activity rhythms, our physical activity, um, the glucose. There's another uh, device called an eye button that you can wear. It measures the skin temperature. Okay. It's also circadian. Yeah. Uh, heart rate rhythms are circadian. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, we, uh, some uh, Fitbit and some other devices will measure this, what's called heart rate variability. Mm. And mm. If you have a, a high level of variability with the heart rate variability, this is a good thing. And also linked okay. to endurance and performance. Yeah. So we're interested in adding that device as well. So um, our study participants are going to be rigged up, so we can <laughs> rigged up, yeah. you know, really watch them because we need to see the 24-hour pattern. Yeah, and that heart rate variability one is an interesting one. It'd be interesting to see how um, uh, time-restricted eating affects that uh, and what it what it does. Absolutely. Well, you know, I look at my my sleep data every morning when I wake up, and I have a mm. Fitbit. So mm. I'm looking at that, and so there's a time about 4:30 in the morning that we all have our lowest body temperature and the lowest heart rate. Mm. So I'm always looking at, you know, did I did I did I have that dip? Um, mm. We know that people who don't have that dip have increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm looking at this data, and I notice if I do eat late at night, then my heart rate is higher um, okay. way into the night. Um, yeah. And, Hopefully, I still get a little bit of a dip, but you can see you can see your heart rate data is affected by the time wow. late night food intake. Yeah. Wow, wow, that's yeah, that's huge as well for people to monitor that. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, what kind of regimen do you do? What kind of routine do you, do you, do you 
um, follow? Yeah, so I try to fast for at least 12 hours every night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to eat no later than eight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I very rarely yeah. eat any calories after 8 p.m. I try yeah. to eat as early as possible, but again, it's difficult um, with the family or with your work if you're in the office yeah. till later, you know. Um, you know, it's not always so pleasant to eat dinner in your office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not nice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I try to make a, a note, a mental note, what time am I eating? It's dinner time at 6.30, then that means, you know, after 6.30 I, I can eat. But I, yeah, so I usually go eight hours, uh, sorry, I'm usually fasting at least 12 hours. I also try not to go more than 14. So my goal is kind of 12 to 14. In that window, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, have you kind of seen this becoming more popular, more people kind of, uh, getting in touch is it do is the momentum around this growing people kind of cottoning onto this or oh definitely yeah definitely it, it, if you google it I googled it the other day I can't remember how many hits it was like millions of hits in wow. Google about intermittent fasting and um, you know people are writing books um, you know I, I I think we still have a lot of uh, things to learn from properly designed research trials about what mm. the best regimen is. So because the mouth studies have an eight hour feeding window and then 16 hours of fasting, you have a lot of people wanting to do that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think from our population data, it doesn't look like you need to fast for 16 hours to, to get a benefit. And it okay. just seems like yeah. that's kind of a, a torture. <laughs> 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 I just don't know that that's necessary. You know, what works yeah. isn't necessarily what, um, what is required. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there were even there was one study uh, looking at an 18-hour fast. So there are some pretty long fasts. And yeah. again, I think of it as a lifestyle. So I don't know that I could do an 18-hour fast forever. You know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. I think um, individuals should think about what works for them in their lifestyle um, and shoot for at least 12 hours of time where you're not putting any calories in. <laughs> into your mouth and try to align your food intake with the daytime because that is when your body is ready to receive and properly handle those nutrients yeah absolutely i think um yeah like you said getting back into the cycle yeah in the western world it's 24 hours a day everything's go 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 exactly yeah so um trying to get back in touch with nature and the rhythms is Mm -hmm. uh, super super important for people Um, yes and I think also the light too, you know, is something to mm. think about. Um, it's something that we can control. So we can turn down lights in our room, you know, in the living room when you're watching television. Uh, like I say, I, I often put my blue light blocking goggles on to watch television after 8 p.m. Um, on the computer, if you're working on a computer or your phone, most devices you can turn off the blue light at night. Yeah. It has a setting yeah. so you can control your blue light. And it really impacts my... Um, when I get sleepy, if yeah. I put on those blue light blocking goggles, and you know, by nine o'clock, I'm I'm ready. Ready to, to, <laughs> I'm ready yeah. to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, light is so important with that, and and uh, blue light especially. So, yeah, not mm-hmm. being on the computer right before you go to bed or your phone, and like you said, yeah. switching it to night mode. I didn't really know that I had a night mode until quite recently. So, um, yeah, yeah it's I've been really using nice that. that they have that. I know. It's yeah, nice yeah, amazing. And sometimes I'll be working on a computer and it's eight o'clock and the computer starts to change the color. Like, no! It's- <laughs> <laughs> it starts to dim down. 
Um, I can't believe I'm working that late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it reminds you, doesn't it? Like you're still going, you should be starting yeah. to relax. Yeah. Um, what are those blue light goggles you use? What are, is that a specific brand or mix? Um, the brand is Uvex, U-V-E-X, and I just okay. found them on uh, eBay. Yeah. They look like safety goggles, uh, <laughs> yeah. and they're, they're yellow. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to get a pair of those. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, a lot of devices that we have have a little blue light, like, um, you know, some light switches now have a little like blue light. standby mode kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. So I also found online some little stickers, so you can put the sticker over those little blue light things um, to really, uh, really be careful of that blue light influence because our bodies are really sensitive to the light. Yeah, so, yeah. And the dim blue light in your bedroom particularly is um, detrimental for you know your sleep. It will suppress your melatonin secretion. Yeah. So yeah, blue light maybe with like alarm clocks on the on the side table that's got a little blue light on it. That's exactly. affecting your melatonin release. Yeah. Exactly. And if you really like your alarm clock, they do have kind of uh, films, so you can mm. buy the film and then cut it and then paste it over your your uh, yeah. The light. So, yeah. 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 Or get one with a red light. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, Philips do like a whole light range, don't they, whereby you can adjust it at the time of the day, like you said, with your computer, it, at a certain time it changes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, exactly. So um, I have a couple of light bulbs in the house where it's um, these lamps that I use for my night light. And there's mm. plenty of light, mm-hmm. plenty of light, but there's no blue light that comes out of that bulb. Those yeah. bulbs are not cheap. Um, yeah. but they're but they're LEDs, so they'll last a long time. But you yeah. can buy bulbs like that, uh, and yeah. the ones like you said that change. Yeah. Those, those are really fancy ones. <laughs> fancy ones. Yeah, you, but yeah, I think this is when we think about the changes in modern. You know, when we think about what is modern life going to yeah. look like, I think we're going to have um, automatically dimming light. Mm. And when I say dim, it even doesn't have to be dimming. It just can be um, elimination of the blue light. Because you can have bright light that looks white, but it doesn't have any blue light. So people are uh, working on developing these types of light bulbs as well. Mm. So I think um, that, you know, maybe a, put a lock on the refrigerator <laughs> that turns yeah. on at 8 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it, when everything goes smart, um, you won't be able to open your fridge at uh, past 8 o'clock or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even, things, even things like um, that uh, are... Um, um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, sorry. Uh, blinds that automatically yep. rise in the morning mm. time um, mm. yeah, would be yeah. really amazing. Yeah. My husband likes to sleep with the curtains tight and black. Um, yeah. And the problem is that then I, I, I don't want to wake up. Yeah, you're just. Staying. I'm very sensitive to the light. So I like yeah. sleeping with the windows open, and then when yeah. the sun rises, I can see that. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you get that, um, what is that, uh, menophasin, is that the one that comes in when you're the hormone? The opposite of melatonin, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kicks in and you're ready to go. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> getting, out in that, getting out in that blue light early in the morning is really important. Yes. Yeah. I also try to do that as well. So in the morning, mm. I like to go sit outside, um, you know, check my email, have my coffee and just be outside so that my brain is, recognizing okay it's it's the daytime now yeah Yeah. and and studies show that if you have that bright light exposure during the day it doesn't have to be a lot just like 15 minutes even that that um makes you 
more resistant to the blue light at night. Because okay. your clock, your brain is already knows like this is morning. Yeah. So when it when you have a little blue, bit of blue light in the in the evening after a morning like that, your brain mm. doesn't get confused because it has such a strong entraining signal from the morning. Yeah. So people who get that outdoor time, um, you know, even on a cloudy day, the light outside is much brighter than any bulb you can have on the inside. So yeah. just having that will help you to be more resistant to any blue light that happens to be in your environment at night. Yeah, and just help you regulate, and like you said, get get that clock started properly. Mm -hmm. um, which is an, another thing in, in society. Obviously, um, people living in in, in um, apartments that aren't well lit or not enough windows and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Yes. So. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and it, and it's very interesting. You know, again, coming back to like social issues, like how mm. do we help people? learn about getting outside what if they're in a place that's not safe to be outside mm. or it's or it's too cold to be outside or you know i live a lot in phoenix so it's too hot to be outside yeah yeah, yeah. You, you would think that in phoenix we'd all get a lot of sun but you know in the summertime nobody does because everybody's inside yeah um, so just uh, communicating that to folks um that if they can't be outside just sit next to a bright window if you can mm. um mm. You know, you think about um, architects, what are the window designs of the future yeah. that'll help more light in? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many areas of innovation to happen. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's good that people are, people are starting to think about that and starting to work on that. Big thank you for tuning in to this month's episode. The new collection is coming soon. As always, check us out on Instagram at Slowly by Consensus. Or check out the website slowlybyconsensus.com. Love is love, and we'll see you next month. Slow radio.